So I've never been one to shy away from difficult subjects and controversial subjects. I've you know, made my share of enemies through the day. You know, two years ago we got canceled from YouTube uh, for you know, daring to speak out about the truth. But um, uh, this morning I want us to take a look, take a break from Acts. I had prepared a message from the next section of Acts uh, in 21, actually bleeding over into 22, and I've got that outline ready to kind of fill in for next week. But about midweek I just really felt burdened that with all that's going on in the world, uh, more than ever before, we need to sound a clear signal. You know, the Bible says if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? And so um, uh, I wanted to make a, a statement here about the sanctity of life. And, you know, ever since the last summer's disastrous Supreme Court decision about abortion, this has just been a growing burden of mine. I've addressed it in multiple uh, conferences. Um, but really many factors make the sanctity of life an issue of vital importance for, for such a time as this in these great last days of deception. So this morning, this is, after all, Sanctity of Life Sunday. A lot of places around the country are addressing this issue. But I want to make sure that the PCC family and our broader live stream audience understands without a shadow of a doubt where we stand. And at PCC, we stand for the sanctity of human life. Uh, I'm titling this message, Life is Sacred. You know, last week, if you were here, if you watched the video, we, in our study of the book of Acts, we talked about the church on display, and we looked at the common bond that we all share uh, as believers, namely our identity in Christ and the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's something else that all believers have in common, or at least should have in common, and that is we value human life, and we understand human life through the pages of Scripture. The sanctity of life is a key issue in our society, especially uh, these days when the Luciferian agenda is really taking root and uh, you know, they are uh, seeking to promote death. You know, Satan loves death. Jesus said he's a murderer from the beginning uh, and uh, he hates life. He, you know, hum humanity is God's prized possession, as we're going to see in a moment, created in the image of God. And Satan has been targeting uh, that uh, prized possession since he confronted Adam and Eve in the garden. But there are many reasons, if you've studied this issue, uh, why people uh, feel this is so important. And I want to just survey a few of those uh, here at the start, and then I want to tell you why it's important to me. So for some people, the sanctity of life is important for personal reasons. They have personal reasons for abo opposing abortion. Maybe it's touched them in a very personal way, and as they've worked through all of the emotions, they've come to be a defender of life. Personal reasons. For some people, it's practical reasons. Uh, maybe they understand the very real practical implications of abortion. They understand the high cost of abortion in terms of emotional, psychological, physiological, and medical dangers. All abortion methods violate the most basic medical tenet, do no harm, if you'll uh, yeah, replace those batteries. Sorry, I'm going to try to speak loudly for those of you here in the room, but I was afraid of that. I should have changed the batteries before we started. But any method of abortion violates the most basic medical tenet, do no harm. And, and, and while some surgeries carry a risk of harm when it comes to abortion, that's the intent. It's intended uh, to harm. Well, he's got it. No, this is better because that'll block the camera. Yeah. 
Thanks. Thanks, though. Okay. See, the devil. When's the last time we ran out of batteries in this thing on a Sunday? I've been here two and a half years. It's never happened. Are we back on? There we go. Yeah. I tell you what, you, you preach the truth, Satan hates it. So always one distraction after another. Uh, but we're going to move forward. Um, abortion may be one of the most common procedural, uh, surgical procedures in the world, but it is hardly a harmless one. A better understanding of the techniques involved makes this abundantly clear. Significant pain is often involved in abortion uh, for the mother, not to mention the child. Uh, and pain is always, even... even the most rudimentary medical studies, peer-reviewed journal articles agree it's always involved for the unborn child. By the time I finish this message this morning, roughly 80 children in this country will be killed. So practical reasons. People understand it, they get it, and so they, they uh, defend the unborn. Still other people oppose abortion for philosophical reasons. Perhaps they've done the research and discovered many logical and philosophical reasons why they should defend the life of the unborn. Growth in the womb is a rapid process. All systems are in place by week eight. An accurate understanding of prenatal development makes it impossible to argue that abortion is the mere removal of undifferentiated cell tissue or that the developing embryo is simply part of the mother's body. Impossible. It's, it is unjust and inaccurate to classify certain human beings as non-persons. By definition, humanity and personhood go hand in hand. Developing humans in the womb have an intrinsically personal nature and demonstrate personality in the same way that many newborns do. So for many people, there are philosophical reasons and good ones. Others have sociological reasons because they understand the sociological implications of abortion. So they defend the sanctity of life. It is reasonable and necessary, they would argue, for society to outlaw certain choices the only way people can successfully live together in community is to give up a measure of personal freedom. Personal choices that infringe on the life and well-being of another human being must be legislated against. Sometimes people oppose abortion for religious reasons. Maybe their devotion to a particular religion uh, compels them to oppose abortion and defend the sanctity of life. Sadly, for some people, uh, abortion has become a political issue. And they have ulterior motives. It's politically expedient uh, to uh, oppose abortion. That's why many of the Luciferian-controlled candidates flip-flop on this, uh, you know, faster than a two-pound trout pulled from the Rio Grande whenever it's politically expedient to do so. But I want to be honest with you right here at the start and say that none of that matters. All of those reasons that I just gave, as important as they are, completely irrelevant to me. And that's because I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. What God's Word says, I believe. And where my beliefs or attitudes or behaviors differ from what's in this book, I'm the one that has to change. I don't have uh, the right to rip out pages from this Bible or conform the standard of God's Word to my uh, whims. So there are many good reasons why someone might choose to defend life, but ultimately all of those reasons fall short of providing an unwavering absolute standard that God's Word gives us. So the, this morning I want to give you the real reasons that you should be defending the sanctity of human life, the only reasons that matter. 
And as a text, I'd like us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, this is an interesting text, you might think, uh, but we're going to look at a lot of Scripture here in a moment uh, for defending the life of the unborn. Uh, but it, it, this is the final portion of Moses' address to the children of Israel at a critical time in that nation's history. And so I couldn't help but see some parallels to that day, 1,400 years before Christ, and our day in the United States of America. In the book of Deuteronomy, 1406 B.C. is the rough time period, we have the preaching of the Old Testament law by Moses. The purpose of the book is to prepare Israel to enter the promised land. Much of what is presented in the book of Deuteronomy is a repetition of what we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But the repetition was necessary from the mind of God because the first generation that had left Egypt and received the law at Mount Sinai had died. They didn't have Bibles they could just pick up. It, you know, Judaism was an oral tradition. And they needed another word from God because it was a whole new generation now, 40 years later. And the emphasis of Deuteronomy is that the land the people were about to receive constituted a stewardship. And if God's people were going to enjoy God's blessings in the land, they must be good stewards of the gift God was giving them. They must guard against the competing and corrupting influence of the Canaanites and other pagan sinful cultures around them that lead them to forget God and depart from Him. And that happened a lot. With the gift comes a stewardship. See, God hates sin because it destroys His people. It offends Him. And therefore, it was important that the Israelites trust God and obey Him. I've said many times that the, the teaching of, of God's Word can be boiled down to those two principles. Trust Him and obey Him. And if you want to enjoy God's blessings... That's what it comes down to. Now, it's not a matter of obedience is what's required to get into heaven. Thankfully, we're saved by grace. It's a free gift, not based on our performance or our behavior, or otherwise none of us could get in. It's a free gift. But our salvation does constitute a stewardship, and we're, we ought to be good stewards of that incredible gift that God has given us. And God had set before the Israelites life and death, blessing and cursing. And they were to choose Life. I want to read just these few verses here, beginning in verse 11. Again, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel near the end of his life, just prior to Joshua taking over and them entering the promised land. Verse 11, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Let me just pause and interject. That really stood out to me as I think about the issue of the sanctity of human life. This is not complicated. It's not complicated. And we're going to see that in just a moment. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply the Lord your God, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish 
You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Again, this is simple blessing and cursing. This is not talking about eternity. You know, sin has consequences. It has consequences for believers and for unbelievers. And as the children of Israel in the wilderness understood, including Moses himself, who's in heaven today, because of his unbelief and disobedience, he didn't get to go into the promised land and that blessing. And listen to what he says, closing out his speech. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. And we talked about that in our uh, message during the Bible study hour. So we too in our generation today have a choice to make, just like the children of Israel did. And it's a choice about life. Never before has that choice been so profoundly about life than the choice we have today. The Luciferian transhumanist eugenicist attack on human life has reached unprecedented levels. Another sign of the times. Last summer, the Luciferian-controlled Supreme Court of the United States issued a ruling that sadly was met with mixed reviews. It should have been roundly rejected by God's people who believe in God's Word. And in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, I address this Luciferian depopulation plan in greater detail, and I'm going to be addressing it in Orlando later uh, this year in March in a message I'm entitling Bloodlust, Exposing the Luciferian Depopulation Agenda. But the abortion industry in America is a key aspect of depopulationism. And many people who understand the depths of the Luciferian control in our country were surprised by the June 24, 2022 Supreme Court decision, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. They were surprised because they don't really understand what was really going on. And they asked, well, why would the powers that be allow such a ruling, they wondered. Well, I was not surprised at all. They allowed it because, contrary to the assertions of many conservatives, it furthered the depopulation agenda. Let me explain. When major events like this happen, and and that was certainly a big one, it was all over the news, uh, we've got to learn to see beyond the two-dimensional aspect. We've got to look beneath the surface like a chess player envisioning a multi-dimensional image of the game several moves ahead so that we can see what's really going on. And the Dobbs decision was hailed by many conservatives as a win. For example, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin said, quote, today is a victory for life and for those who have fought for decades to protect the unborn. Far from it. Far from it. Far from being a victory, the decision played right into the hands of the Luciferians' agenda. In Dobbs, the Supreme Court ruled definitively, without question, once and for all, that the unborn have no constitutional right to life. That's what that decision was. The United States Constitution grants equal protection to all human beings, And by granting individual states the right to decide whether they will allow the murder of unborn children, the Supreme Court denied unborn children their constitutionally protected right to life. The court essentially enshrined the contention of the Luciferians that unborn children are not human beings. The Dodds decision was a geographical one, not a constitutional one. It effectively told Americans where we can murder our unborn children, 
not whether we can. See, according to the 14th Amendment, all citizens are guaranteed, quote, equal protection of the laws. According to the 10th Amendment, often called the States' Rights Amendment, only those powers not specifically delegated to the federal government by the Constitution can be deferred to the states. You following this? So the Supreme Court had an opportunity, based on the, those explicit amendments, to settle the issue once and for all by affirming, uh, by affirming the rights of the unborn. And yet, because Supreme Court justices are controlled, like most senators and congressmen in the White House, uh, they, they lacked the courage to do the right thing. They declared, the unborn don't have federally constitutional defended rights, so we're going to defer that to the states and leave it up to the states to decide. Dobbs has created abortion tourism. The ruling created sanctuary states for the killing of unborn children. A growing number of companies have begun not only encouraging the murder of the unborn, but also incentivizing, aiding, and abetting it. Companies like Dick's Sporting Goods, Levi's, J.P. Morgan Chase, Tesla, Starbucks, and many others are offering employees up to $4,000 and paid leave to travel across state lines and murder their unborn children. They're calling it abortion travel benefits. That's what they call it. It's true that in the short term, some states have restricted abortion, but make no mistake, this won't last. Depravity is a degenerative disease. It does not get better with time. Let me ask you, which is more likely that states like California, Colorado, and New York will someday see the error of their ways and outlaw abortion? Or that the few states that immediately banned abortion following the Dobbs ruling will eventually succumb to the Luciferian pressure and make it legal in their states. I can tell you which is more likely. Thanks to the Supreme Court, going forward, states will be able to legalize infanticide with complete impunity. They have ruled that the United States Constitution provides absolutely no relief for the unborn. It's up to the states. Well, if we go back to our text, uh, this morning I want to talk about the sanctity of human life as it relates to four things. And you may want to grab a pen and jot down some notes because I'm going to basically be giving you a solid biblical defense for the sanctity of human life in this message. I want to talk about the sanctity of life as it relates to the Bible, the world, Christians, and society. The Bible, the world, Christians, and our society. Number one, the Bible. The Bible decrees that human life is sacred. The Bible decrees that human life is sacred. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, and in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The imago Dei, as, the, as we call it in Latin, the image of God in man, is not contingent upon how long a human life has existed. You don't become a human when you're one year old or one month old or one week old or one minute old or one second old. You become a human life the moment you are a human life. That's the definition of humanity. It's not a matter of degree. It's not a matter of viability. It's a matter of identity. What is a human life? And the Creator answers that question in his word. First of all, we see that human life begins at conception. 
The Bible does not mention abortion by name. It does not deal specifically with it as a name. For that matter, it doesn't deal specifically with infanticide, the killing of babies. The Bible never mentions parricide, the killing of parents. It never mentions fratricide, the killing of your siblings, or uxoricide, the killing of your wife, or even genocide, the killing of a whole race. Certainly examples of these types of murders are mentioned, but the Bible never singles any one of them out for special treatment. In fact, the Bible doesn't even specifically single out suicide. There are, of course, though, specific provisions against homicide, the deliberate taking of an innocent human life. And the Bible prohibits the deliberate taking of innocent human life. So therefore, if the developing baby in the womb can be shown to be a human being, then we don't need a specific command against feticide any more than we need a specific commandment against uxoricide or genocide. The general commandment against homicide covers all forms of the taking of innocent life. And let me give you some verses. And I want to mention as we go through these that, you know, statistically speaking, in a room this size, there's undoubtedly people here who have been touched by abortion. And I want you to know that Plum Creek Chapel is a grace-oriented church. And this is not in any way meant to judge or condemn or cause people to feel guilt. Every one of us in this room has stories that if you knew our stories, it would make us cower. We're all broken human beings. We've all done things we regret. Some of the greatest heroes of the Bible are adulterers and murderers and persecutors. So don't think for a second, if you're in this room today and you've been touched or you're listening online and you've been touched by abortion, that somehow don't let the devil use this to, to shame you and bring you down and discourage you. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. As it is for all of us. We're all sinners saved by grace. But Jeremiah, for example, reminds us that God has plans for us before we're born. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. David in Psalm 51 discusses his pre-born spiritual condition. He says, before I was ever born, when I was conceived, I was in sin. I was a sinner from the moment of conception. In Genesis chapter 25, we read about two twins in the womb that were clearly distinct individuals, Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb. The children struggled together within her. The children? Wait a minute. thought they were just, you know, part of the mother. No, no, they were human beings, and they were struggling within the womb. The unborn human life has an identity. David says, but for you, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Human life is a human life from the moment it's a human life. <laughs> He says, and in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. The unborn human life has an identity. Paul the apostle was set apart while still in his mother's womb. Galatians 1.15, who, se who separated me from my mother's womb. In other words, he set me apart. He called me. John the Baptist experienced joy in the womb. While he was still in Elizabeth's womb, he leaped for joy when he heard the sound of Mary. In Luke chapter 2, famous Christmas passage, we looked at this 
at our Christmas Eve service. Then he says, this will be a sign of you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, what's significant about that? Well, the Greek word for babe, there's brephos. And clearly throughout Scripture, it's used to refer to the unborn and the born. In fact, the verse we just looked at in Luke 141, same word, brephos. It's a baby that leapt in the womb. It's a baby that was laid in a manger. No difference. In fact, the Bible never distinguishes between human life and non-human life from the moment of conception. A human life is a human life. All human life is valuable to God. Going back to Genesis 1, again, God, that mankind was God's highest pinnacle of creation. To no other created thing did he say, we're going to make you according to our image or in our likeness. In Psalm 8, we read, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, we are here on this earth to bring God glory. And why would we want to destroy something that brings God glory? Notice what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? When God created mankind, he gave us dominion. Why? Because humanity means something. The Luciferians that are pulling the strings in the world today, trying to usher in a one-world political, religious, and economic system, are trying to tell you that humanity means nothing. We're just useless breathers. They care more about oak trees and whales than they do mankind. And Jesus says we're more valuable. In Matthew 10, Jesus was sending out the disciples. He says, do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God's word protects human life. As I mentioned, the prohibition against homicide, the taking of an innocent human life, Exodus 20, 13, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. In Exodus 21, the Old Testament law protects the unborn. Notice, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall be he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. This is the Old Testament law. And he shall pay as the judge is determined. Well, watch this. But if any harm follows, if that unborn child is harmed, then you shall give life for life. That's a principle going back to Genesis 9. If the baby's not a human being, why would God's word call it life for life? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. One of the six things, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Hands that shed innocent blood. In Numbers 35, permitting innocent bloodshed pollutes a land, God told the Israelites. He said, don't pollute the land where you live, for blood defiles the land. You know, it, this is all part of the Luciferians' agenda that started around the turn of the 20th century to bring down America. But, you know, until 1973 we at least officially took a stand against abortion. And then we promoted abortion. And now we've come in for the final step of their agenda. And they've been planning this out for decades. I make this case in my books. And we've basically eliminated any hope of unborn children ever having a constitutional right like you and I. In Deuteronomy, going back to the law, Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. Accepting money to kill an innocent human life is forbidden. The prophet Amos, an 8th century B.C. prophet to the northern kingdom 
of Israel, said God's wrath is poured out against those who kill unborn children. He talked about how they ripped open the women with child in Gilead. And God judged them. Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. See, a, a human life resulting from the sin of rape or incest is, incest is still under God's protection. You know, that evil, despicable human being committed a horrific crime. We'll show him we're going to kill an innocent life. <laughs> Makes no sense. Exodus 4.11, all human life that is physically or mentally handicapped is still under God's protection. The Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? Isaiah the prophet said, shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to, the shame, to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. All human life is under God's protection. And the, the world tries to tell us that it's the quality of life. You know, If you're mentally handicapped or you're in pain or you have a sprained ankle, you can just kill yourself. In Canada now, you can kill yourself without even a doctor's prescription. Used to, you had to have a prescription for him to kill you. Assisted suicide's been around in Canada for decades. Now you can just, you know, go online, say I'm depressed. They have advertisements, TV commercials. Maybe you've seen these just recently. Try to encourage depressed teenagers to end it all and just, you know, imagine what's on the other side. You know, you, can, you have the right to do it. Just take your life. See, it's a depopulation agenda. You should watch that commercial. It will chill you to the bone. Number two, let's talk about the world. So the Bible decrees that human life is sacred. Secondly, the world denies that human life is sacred. The world denies that human life is sacred. Proverbs says, There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. Listen to this. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. And I submit to you, we're living in that generation. If we didn't have biblical prophecy, all we have to do is look around to make that case. America has been duped. Americans are believing the biggest lie ever told. It's a lie that says convenience and comfort are more important than life. It's a lie told by the devil, the father of lies himself, when he says, life has no value. Life is not precious. Life is expendable. Life is discretionary. Life is disposable. Life doesn't really matter. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And it's not just abortion that promotes this lie. It's the entire satanic eugenicist agenda that encourages suicide, euthanasia, and any other murderous philosophy that suggests somehow life is dispensable. Did you know that the doctors in Roe v. Wade argued that, quote, medically the embryo and fetus are merely part of the mother's body and not yet human? End quote. Well, we've just shown biblically, and again, this is all that matters, that that's not the case. One doctor on the, at the court uh, testified that uh, the unborn child was just protoplasmic rubbish and a gobbet of meat. Well, if you've ever held a newborn in your arms, and I've had the privilege of doing that six times, 
or if you've ever looked at a sonographic image, you know that's not protoplasmic rubbish. That is a precious, precious little human being, a human life. Did you know that in the U.S. there are approximately 2 million infertile couples waiting to adopt? And many times it's regardless of the child's medical problems like Down syndrome or spina bifida or HIV infection or some terminal illness. They just want a child to love. 36 couples vie for every one baby who's adopted on average. <clears throat> a typical adoption can cost tens of thousands of dollars or more. You can end the life of an unborn child for as little as $200. And thanks to the effects of a Dobbs decision, you can actually now do it for free and actually make money with your per diems that you get to go travel and do it. The world definitely denies <clears throat> the sanctity of life, that life is sacred. The truth about human life is denied for the sake of population control. Uh, this is one of the biggest lies that they've been promoting for the last 100 years. I'm going to give you some quotes here in a moment, but uh, you need to understand what a blatant lie this is. It's not even close that the world is overcrowded. The entire world's population, using 7.5 billion as a rough estimate, I think it's higher than that, but let's just use that as a point of reference, the entire world's population can fit within the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. Now, whenever I say this at conferences, people often look at me like I'm nuts. I'm not sure why. Uh, I can only assume it's because maybe they're a product of compulsory government schooling and common core mathematic techniques or something because the mathematical figures simply don't lie. It's not even close. Let me do the math for you. Jacksonville, Florida has 834 square miles of land which is equal to 23, let's just say a little more than 23 billion square feet. One square mile is 27 uh, million, almost 28 million square feet. So you do the math, the, the 834 square miles of Jacksonville has 20, over 23 billion square feet. Well, each person can occupy a one and a half by one and a half foot square. It's 2.25 square feet. So if you take 7.5 billion people times 2.5 square feet, you get just under 17 billion square feet. How many did we say were in Jacksonville? Over 23 billion. It's not even close. Not even close. Listen to what some of the Satan-worshipping world leaders have said through the years. Paul Ehrlich was an American biologist, and he was famous for his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, in which he famously stated that in the 70s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death because of overpopulation. And he said, quote, nobody in my view has the right to have 12 children or even three unless the second pregnancy is twins. Ted Turner, another eugenicist, said the total world population of 250, 300 million people, a 95% decline is what would be the ideal. Bill Maher has become a darling of conservatives. He worships Satan, just so you know. Uh, he said, I'm pro-choice. I'm for pro-assisted suicide. I'm for regular suicide. I'm for whatever gets the freeway moving. That's what I'm for. It's too crowded. The planet is too crowded. We need to promote death. That's what Bill Maher said. Detroit News columnist Nolan Finley said, since the national intention is on birth control, here's my idea. If we want to fight poverty, reduce violent crime, and bring down our embarrassing dropout rate, we should swap contraceptives for fluoride in Michigan's drinking water. Nina Fedorov was a key advisor to Hillary Clinton, Secretary, former Secretary of State. She, she said, we need to continue to decrease the growth rate of the global population. The planet can't support many more people. She must be not very good at math. 
Most people know all about John Holdren, Barack Obama's primary science advisor. He suggested a program of sterilizing women after their second or third child, despite the relatively greater difficulty of the operation than a vasectomy, might be easier to implement than trying to sterilize men. He went on to say, the development of a long-term sterilizing capsule that could be implanted under the skin and removed when pregnancy is desired opens additional possibilities for coercive fertility control. The capsule could be implanted at puberty and might be removable with official permission for a limited number of births. This is right out of Revelation 13 and the full-spectrum planetary control that the Antichrist is going to put, up, put over on the world. Uh, David Brower, the first executive director of the Sierra Club, another Luciferian think tank, said, quote, childbearing should be a punishable crime against society unless the parents hold a government license. All potential parents should be required to use contraceptive chemicals, the government issuing antidotes only to citizens chosen for childbearing. And then, of course, we all know about Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Homicide, Planned Parenthood, excuse me. All of our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. The most merciful thing she said that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. How many of you recognize that in the United States, in that Luciferian-controlled section of our country inside the Beltway, has an Office of Population Affairs? An Office of Population Affairs. Thomas Ferguson, uh, former official in the U.S. State Department, said that at the U.S. Office of Population Affairs, said there is a single theme behind all our work. We must reduce population levels. You can go to healthandhumanservices.gov and find out all about this. He says, once population is out of control, it requires authoritarian government, even fascism, to reduce it. Basically, this guy's saying, I'm Hitler, and I'm here to help. That, that's what he's saying. Um, if you go to the website for the Office of Population Affairs, you can't read that because it's so small, so let me zoom in. Here's what they're all about. Here's what your tax dollars are, are helping with this government agency. The OPA advises the Secretary and the Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, that is, on a wide range of reproductive and adolescent health topics, listen, including teen pregnancy prevention, family planning, and sterilization, as well as other population issues. Well, the truth about human life is also denied for the sake of choice, for the sake of choice, um, you know, people think we've got to, you know, give, give this freedom to choose. But as I said in my open, there's all kinds of choices that the Bible prohibits and the law prohibits. You know, I don't have the choice to kill you, you know, innocently. Now, you come at me and I'm going to defend myself. But I don't have the right to just indiscriminately go kill innocent people unless it's, you know, you call it family planning, right? The truth about human life is denied by the world for the sake of convenience or difficult circumstances. Um, even the research arm of planned homicide, the leading abortuary in the U.S., confirms this data. They say 95% of abortions in the country are performed for reasons of convenience. We certainly don't have the right to end someone else's life for our own convenience, but we likewise aren't free to end our own life when the suffering gets too bad. That's what euthanasia is all about. The Bible never promises that we won't suffer. On the contrary, the Bible promises that suffering strengthens our faith, James 1. It prepares us for the glories of heaven, Romans 8. Our difficult circumstances or the perceived difficult circumstances of the child do not negate God's prohibition 
against taking an innocent human life, period. I'm going to read this letter. It's a hypothetical letter that uh, I sometimes have a hard time getting through, but it really makes the point about how evil it is to think that it's okay to take a human life for convenience or for circumstances. It's a letter called Dear Mom. Maybe some of you have come across this. It says, Dear Mom, can you believe it's 2025 already? I'm still writing 24 on nearly everything. Seems like just yesterday I was sitting in first grade celebrating the century change. I know we haven't really chatted since Christmas. Sorry. Anyway, I have some difficult news, and I, I really don't want to call and talk about it in person. Ted's had a promotion, and, and I keep putting in those crazy hours myself. You know how I really work at it. And yes, we're still struggling with the bills. Little Timmy's been okay at kindergarten, although he complains about going. But then he wasn't happy about daycare either, so what can I do? He's been a real problem, Mom. He's a good kid, but quite honestly, he's an unfair burden at this time in our lives. Ted and I have talked this through, and we finally made a choice. Plenty of other families have made it, and they're much better off. Our pastor is supportive. Talk about the apostate church. Our pastor is supportive, and he says hard decisions sometimes are necessary. The family is a system, and the, de the demands of one member shouldn't be allowed to ruin the whole family. He told us to be prayerful, consider all the factors, and do what is right to make the family work. He says that even though he probably wouldn't do it himself, the decision is a personal one that each family must make on their own. He was kind enough to refer us to a children's clinic near here, so at least that part's easy. I'm not an uncaring mother. I do feel sorry for the little guy. I think he overheard Ted and me talking about it the other night. I turned around and saw him standing at the bottom of the stairs in his PJs with the little bear you gave him under his arm <clears throat> and his eyes sort of welling up. Mom, the way he looked at me nearly broke my heart, but I honestly believe this is better for Timmy too. It's not fair to force him to live in a family that can't give him the time and attention he deserves. And please, don't give me the same kind of grief Grandma gave you over your abortions. It's the same thing, you know. We've told him he's just going in for a vaccination. Anyway, they say the termination procedure is painless. I guess it's just as well you haven't seen that much of him lately. Give my love to Dad. Love, Jim. Number three... Christians must defend the principle that human life is sacred. The Bible decrees human life is sacred. The world denies human life is sacred. And Christians must defend the principle that human life is sacred. We have a mandate from Scripture to intervene. We must help society choose life the way Moses and Joshua helped the children of Israel choose life. Believers are responsible for defending the unborn. You know, to what degree you intervene, I'm not sure. But it's certainly somewhere between the angry zealot who blows up abortion clinics and kills innocent people themselves and the concerned believer who sits in ambivalent silence. What can you do? We've got some folks in our fellowship now that are on the leading edge of the fight for the sanctity of life. Talk to them. See what you can do. See how you can get involved. The Bible says, deliver those who are drawn toward death. 
Deliver those who are drawn toward death. We have a responsibility for defending innocent human life. Nehemiah, when he prayed, by the way, and Daniel prayed the same thing in his famous prayer in Daniel 9, as he was praying for favor from God before uh, the king, he says, me and my father's house have sinned. Both, both my father's house and I have sinned. In other words, he took responsibility, and Christians share in the guilt of society. It's a cultural problem. Ezekiel reminded the children of Israel in the post-exilic community, if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, his blood I will require at your hand. We have a responsibility to speak out on this issue. And then finally, the Bible decrees that human life is sacred. The world denies that human life is sacred. And Christians must defend the principle that human life is sacred. But society needs to discover that human life is sacred. Society needs to discover that all human life is precious to God, born and unborn, ill and well, disabled and healthy. It doesn't matter. Society needs to understand God is in control of difficult circumstances. Society needs to understand that all things work together for good. Society needs to understand that God is gracious and loving. You know, uh, we've been praying for a young man named Jordan. Uh, that's Heather Beach's son. And Heather emailed me or texted me actually yesterday. Jordan's the young man, 25 years old, terminal cancer throughout his body. Just found out December, I think it was 29th or 26th, somewhere right around Christmas. Newborn baby, little Esther, wife Jess. Wendy and I made the trip up there to visit him, and uh, he's dying. And yet his testimony is so unbelievable, it made me feel ashamed of my boldness because he's just talking about how it's the most exciting time in his life and how he can't wait to see Christ. But you know what? He knows God's not through with him yet, and he's got a job to do. So every doctor, every nurse, every hospice person, he's been finally released They've got some medicines that keep the pain in check, and so he's in hospice care at his house now so he can spend the rest of his days with his precious you know, wife and baby. But Heather texted me yesterday that as people are coming and visiting him, he's sharing Christ with them, sharing the gospel with them. And he led one person yesterday to faith in Christ, and there was rejoicing, and they, they were excited, and the angels in heaven were rejoicing because this person who came to visit a friend who's dying ended up, because of this guy's valuing life and not giving up and saying, just give me some more morphine, the pain's too much, he's doing what we're supposed to do as, as human beings. But God is gracious and loving. The Bible decrees the truth about the sanctity of human life very clearly. And when the world denies that truth, Christians must declare that truth so that our society can discover it. And if the Lord tarries is coming, there's still much fighting left to do on this issue. Now is the time. At Plum Creek Chapel, we stand for the sanctity of human life. So here's the takeaway, very simply. Life is sacred. Cherish it. Cherish it. Let's pray. Father, tough subject today, yet shouldn't be tough for believers because we believe in the whole counsel of God and you've made it very plain to us in scripture what the issue here is 
non-negotiable, non-complex, no room for wiggling. Lord, we value life because you value life. Lord, I pray that your grace would be poured over anyone within the sound of my voice that has been touched in some way by this issue. You would remind them of your unconditional love for them and how you're so much bigger than any past failures or mistakes that we have in our lives, and we all have them. Lord, for those who may be listening to this message and struggling with any of the related issues to the sanctity of life, I pray that you'd convict them powerfully through your Holy Spirit to defend life, whatever the situation may be. Don't give up. Don't consider uh, giving in. And Lord, for those who may be listening to this today that don't know you, maybe even sitting in this place today, by your providence, you've led them here. If they don't know you as their personal Savior, I pray that today, through simple faith, they would place their trust in Jesus Christ, your Son, the one who took our place on the cross, died for our sins, rose again, and offers freely to everyone who believes in him forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, show us what we can do both as a church and as individuals to stand up for the unborn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.